Hey everybody, welcome to Crystal Kyle and Friends. Today we're going to be talking to Johan Hari. Yes, author of a number of best-selling books. You may know him from Lost Connections or Chasing the Scream. His new book is called Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention and How to Think Deeply Again. Um, all three of those books are really worthwhile, but I'm excited to get into this one. Yeah, so one of them's on the drug war and why he thinks drugs should be legalized, based. Uh, another one's on depression and why he thinks... Basically, modern society has led to a drastic increase in depression and how maybe the pills might be overprescribed. And uh, the new one is about how none of us can hold our attention on anything for more than like 12 seconds. Yeah. Which is, is kind of true. And <laughs> how it's capitalism's fault, basically. Right. Not just yeah. big tech, but also just, you know, the the profit motive has sort of stripped our our intelligence and our focus away from us in service of making us good little consumers. So get into all of that with him. Yeah, really interesting guy. I think you guys are going to enjoy it. Um, but before we get into that, there's a poll that came out the other day. Now, I will say the source here is Rasmussen. Rasmussen is well known for being a right-leaning pollster. Sure. Um, having said that, uh, I don't know how... Even if you, like, factor in the right-wing bias, <laughs> this, this, these are still astounding numbers. Well, and also, the, I used to be a lot more skeptical of pollsters like Rasmussen, but then we found yeah. out that the normal In the Trump years, they were actually a little more they correct. They were more yeah. accurate. I mean, the, Well, to be fair, they were terribly wrong in, like, 2012 with Romney. Right. But, but now, now something in the is modern happened, era. And pollsters don't really know what's going on, but there seems to be an undersampling bias in of Republicans. to Republicans yeah. and especially Trump supporting Republicans. So all of that is a long way of saying it's worth looking at some of the data that they have. So the question is, do you agree or disagree with this statement? This is amazing. The media are, quote, truly the enemy of the people. Okay. The results. So among white people... 56% say, yes, the media is the enemy of the people. Wow. Among the black community, 63% say, yes, the media is the enemy of the people. And then they have this category, other non-white. 60% say, yes, media is enemy of the people. The only one that didn't say it, Democrats. 37% of Democrats say media um, is the enemy of the pe people, so a majority say it's not. Um, unaffiliated, so like independents, 61% say the media is the enemy of the people. And Republicans, 76% say the media is the enemy of the people. Wow. And then uh, when you look at all, like everybody, it's 58% that say, yes, the media is the enemy of the people. So I, so I was, a little, I was a little surprised by it. Yeah. But I will say, and you're not usually allowed to say this if you're a leftist, but I'll say it because I think it's true. I think they're right. I think the American people are correct. Now, the the reasons why, you know, my diagnosis of it might be different from somebody on the right. And I also generally think that when, you know, like when Trump or some people on the right bash the media, it's because they want to tear the media down. And, and I think they want it to be more biased in their favor. It's not that they want the media to do a, a good job. I actually want the media to do a good job. So it's fundamentally a different criticism. But I mean, look, uh, I'll get to my reasons in a second as to why I think uh, they're it's correct that the people are right. What do you think about it? Well, just to um, further make the point you were just making, you know that the typical Trump right-wing criticism is 
flawed because they don't say it about their own outlets. Right. right? They think Fox News is great or One American News Network is great or Newsmax is great. Exactly. And they're like, they're objectively the worst right. in the and, sense that they give the worst information. And Fox has the largest audience. I mean, it is right. a mainstream network. It has the largest audience of all the cable news networks. And so if you're just like exempting them from your analysis, then your analysis is probably pretty silly. Whereas obviously, like, we're very happy to criticize Fox, but we're also see very clearly the project that CNN and MSNBC are engaged in. Are they the enemy of the people? I think you have to say yes, because literally their project right now is to convince the people that their friend, neighbor, uncle, brother who thinks differently than them is an evil, bad person to distract you from, you know, the actual structural issues and the problems that elites in this country cause. And I think that is the root of a lot of the problems that we see right now. So if on, you know, this is Matt Taibbi, this is hating. If you are listening to Fox, it's the liberals, it's the quote unquote left who are tearing society down and it's an existential threat. And if you're listening to CNN, they've got a different version of that. And, um, you know, I think it's all very convenient for people in power and keeps any real sort of movements from change from actually having a chance at success because people are so um, so con made to be so convinced that it's actually their neighbor that's the problem. So when I see numbers like this, I say, good. I wish that the number among Democrats was higher. I, I think it will be in time, I but that's suspect, my speculation. I suspect this 37% of Democrats is already significantly higher than it was previously yes. when there was just total uncritical acceptance of whatever the liberal media line was. Yeah, so... Um here are the reasons why, I think. So, first of all, the media, what do they call it? I think they call it the fourth estate, right? Mm -hmm. So, it's like the bar is high. You're supposed to give people news, information, facts, data about the world. And then, like, in doing that, you should be holding the powerful accountable. And there's this saying... Um, from a few years back that I heard from Cenk Uger of all people. He says the media is supposed to be the watchdog of the people, uh, the watchdog for the people, but they're the lapdog of power or mm. something like that. Like they're a lapdog instead of a watchdog. And it's like that, yeah, that's exactly right. right. Yeah. So um, people know it's it's a really important institution, but they, do, they don't treat it with that seriousness. And... So there are a number of biases. Obviously, for MSNBC, it's a bias in favor of the Democratic Party. Now, that's different from having a left-wing bias or having an ideological Very perspective. Different. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not the same thing. I want, it's fine to have ideological media. In fact, that's more honest, if you ask me. But they're biased in favor of the Democratic Party on, the, on Fox News. They're biased in favor of the Republican Party. Uh, and then you have uh, just the general establishment bias, which I would argue cuts across all of mainstream media. They're all biased to one extent or another in favor of the broader establishment and the status quo and business as usual. Uh, and they also generally have this smug sense of self-importance as well, which, you know, you could tell that they think they're elites. <laughs> and pe that rubs the people the wrong way. quality you could possibly have. That's right. And compare that to, to, you know, take Joe Rogan, for example. Now, I have plenty of substantive disagreements with Joe Rogan on policy. Uh, but I think the reason why Joe Rogan sort of caught on and has these incredible numbers that are just through the roof is because there's an authenticity and an honesty there where even if he's saying something and he's dead wrong on it, he's honestly dead wrong. <laughs> and that honesty part is the part that people, I think, care more about than anything else in many respects. And so when you look at the damage that and mainstream... doesn't comport himself like I have spoken. Well, exactly. And if you look at the damage that mainstream media has done, I mean, to me, the biggest one is you go back to the wars 
and you go back to the financial crashes. Yep. So you go back and CNBC leading up to the 2008 crash, the subprime mortgage crisis, the Great Recession, the you know when Lehman Brothers went under. You go back and watch. It's astounding what they did. They invited on the CEOs of all these companies which were currently imploding, and those CEOs were saying, "Ah, this is I don't know." Guys, calm down, relax, it's okay, keep giving us money, uh, the market's going to go back up. And all the hosts said it, except for one, this libertarian guy named Peter Schiff, who was like, iceberg dead ahead, but every, he was laughed off air. So CNBC was flat out doing propaganda for corporate America at the time, and I mean, this is the financial expert channel. If anything, they should have been the ones who were ahead of the story, but instead they were way behind the story mm -hmm. and doing propaganda for the people who were making all the bad decisions. Take, you know... Uh, it's the mouth of Wall Street over That's there. exactly yeah. right. It, mm -hmm. The bombing of Syria. That was... Trump never got more love than when he bombed Syria. You had hosts go out there, I think it was Brian Williams talking about the beauty of our weapons. You had other hosts saying, this is the day that Trump really became president. And they, they do this. They push for every single war. They defend the status quo. And I think that the, the negative impact of that makes it so that not only do they earn these numbers, they would earn it if the numbers were way higher than this. Oh, 100%. I mean, Afghanistan's a perfect example. We invited on all these people, John Bolton, to pretend like they were so concerned during the Afghanistan withdrawal about the plight of the Afghani civilians, people that they had never once cared about during the entire length of the war. And then now that Biden, by their administration, freezing the assets of the Afghani government, they're creating mass famine with, you know, m huge consequences. Worse for, than the war, arguably, oh, it's Crystal. horrific. I mean, millions of people who are in danger of starving to death, including children. Not a peep. Nothing to say about it. I mean, if anything, they support it or they prod them further from the right. It, that's exactly right. The minute, if there was any attempt to sort of ease up on that, they'd say, oh, why are you funding? Why are you funding these terrorists? What, right. you're going to fund yeah. the Taliban? It's like you are intentionally starving the people of this country, people that a minute ago, because it served Raytheon and General Dynamics and Boeing and these other military industrial complex contractors, a minute ago you pretended to care so much about these people, but now that there's not a profit to be made for those same ghouls, well, now you don't care, and in fact, you're on the wrong side of the issue. Look at the amount of coverage when they were screaming about how it's bad for Biden to pull out of Afghanistan, how it was nonstop melting down. What about the women? What about the girls? It was like a, a week or two weeks long of hair on fire, everybody melting down, everybody screaming, this is bad, this is wrong, this is terrible. The implication was you got to go back in or you got to be more hawkish. Yeah. And then now with literally perhaps millions of people either on the brink of starving or actually starving, yeah. all of a sudden, where's the concern for the women and girls of Afghanistan? All of a sudden it's gone. It's totally gone. Yeah. So uh, the final point on this is think of manufacturing consent. And, and Noam Chomsky, because the idea behind is like the incentive structure is the problem. So the way it works in, in modern media is they only hire people who they know are not going to rock the boat too much. Yeah. There's a reason why Wolf Blitzer has roughly 17 hours on air in a day at CNN, because they know. I mean, he asked a question to Rand Paul when Rand Paul was like, we, maybe we shouldn't be arming Saudi Arabia. He said, well, what about the jobs? <laughs> what about the jobs? What, the jobs for Raytheon and Lockheed Martin, people making weapons of death? I think we could find an economy that's not based on massacring babies. What do you think? So We could probably work that out. The, the incentive structure is the problem. And you have the commercial interest. You have the ad money that comes in. And, I mean, the corporations that are giving this ad money, they are they're the problem. Like, these are the people who've bought the government. These are the people who've rigged the rules. And so when you have 
the people who are the problem, the institutions that are the problem funding the media, yeah. the media largely reflects the interests of those corporations. Let me let me give a perfect example that came across my Twitter feed from uh, Alan McLeod. <laughs> He's got a screenshot of Politico. Mm. The article is, should the U.S. rattle Putin's cage, presented by Lockheed Martin. I mean, perfect example. And this isn't, how is this not considered a conflict of interest? How, how is this not a giant scandal? I mean, every time, because exactly Politico does right. this all the time. All the time. And all you see is like, you know, left-wing shit posters that, you know, pointed out on Twitter. And they're like, look at this. This is insane. The fact that like, you know, it, it drives me crazy that there's some ant sitting in the middle of Minnesota right now, 57 years old, sipping some wine, reading that article. And it might not even occur to her that this is like, this is grotesque. This is perverse. Yeah. That the people who stand to benefit from endless war are telling you what they think you should believe on war. Well, why would I believe them? They're the people who stand to profit if we go to war. Should the U.S. rattle Putin's cage? I mean, what you're you're talking about like flirting with nuclear war, right. with war between two armed nuclear powers. I mean, yes, Russia is not what they once were, but they still got a lot of nukes. This is not something to be like, you know, cutesy or casual about. It's pretty disgraceful. And I think one of the things that is always important to understand is because I get this question a lot. You probably do, too. Like, do these people sincerely believe the things that they're pushing? And oftentimes the answer actually is yes. Yeah, I think it's a mix. For a yeah. couple for a, a couple of reasons. One is because they've been selected yeah. for those positions exactly because they're going to be a reliable voice for whatever the sort of powers that be want them to be. And another, this is the social set that they are in and the, the waters that they swim in and the, the class that they see themselves as part of. So they're, they're in this bubble where nothing else penetrates. And, you know, I mean, not a Tucker Carlson fan, but he's been trying to say, let's not go to war with Russia. And I haven't seen all of his commentary, so I don't want to co-sign everything that he said on this matter. But people are losing their minds over him trying to explain, like, here's a little bit of how the Russians may be approaching this. And they're calling him well, a traitor and wanting him to, like— They're doing the Russiagate thing, yeah, just like they did to Trump. Like, absolutely. well, now you're a Russian you're puppet a Russian because puppet. you're saying this. Like, you're guys, just, this is the left position. This right. is what Noam Chomsky says about the issue, for the love of God. Right, exactly. The and one reasonable take, and all of a sudden, you know, that's when they go after him the most vociferously. The most intensely. So, and, and, yes, I co-sign the enemy of the people um, pronouncement of the American people. Yeah, here. and look, I don't want to say— new media and independent media is a panacea because it's not because you know for every great outlet you also have the alex joneses out there and you have the crazy people who sort of work their way up through the ranks and mm -hmm. another problem you have with new media is audience capture yeah where you get to the point where the people will just start to tell the audience what they think the audience wants to hear and they don't yeah. completely stay honest with the audience and you know that's a problem so i'm not saying new media is a panacea but what i will say is there are many more options and many more outlets in new media that do a much better job than anything you're going to see in old media because they don't have they have different incentives some good some bad but the incentive structure in old media makes it so that honestly the number should be 90 percent say the media is the enemy of the people and yeah. i don't want to hear it because then you know there's might be a small percentage of people who are like well you sound like when the nazis said lugan press or lying press or whatever it's like not every criticism of the media is a Nazi criticism, is a far-right criticism. I just said, I just led the segment by saying, yeah, when Donald Trump rips the media, it's because he's mad they're not propagandists for him. He's mad they're not parroting his line 100%, co-signing everything he says. Yeah. That's a fundamentally different criticism from the criticism I'm making and the criticism that you're making, which is, look, all I want them to do is this. Put, like, 
facts, data, and information first, and then insofar as you have an ideological perspective, be open and honest about your ideological perspective with the audience so they know what your biases are, they know what perspective that you're coming from, and just you should generally have the mindset of, like, let me hold the powerful accountable and let me try to make the world a better place. That's it. That's all I want. Yeah. We actually believe in the free press, unlike a bunch of these fraudsters, and that's why we want to see Julian Assange released. That's right. That's a <laughs> phenomenal point, yeah. And uh, I think if that story was more broadcast in a fair way and more people knew about it, I do think the number about the media would go up way more in terms of that, you know, they're, they're no good. Because it's like, yeah, this is your job. I mean, we... What was the story that just came out the other day? Oh, with Biden calling Ducey the ly lying, lying son dumb, of a bitch. No, wasn't it dumb? Stupid son of a bitch. Stupid son of a bitch. And I saw <laughs> the views commentary on it was like, uh, you know, hey, it wasn't good, but he apologized and Trump was worse. They had this whole conversation about freedom of the press. Nobody brought up Julian Assange. Wow. Nobody brought up Edward Snowden. Nobody brought up the war on whistleblowers. And I'm sitting there watching it like. How do you have a whole conversation about freedom of the press and you don't bring up a literal political prisoner right now who's rotting away behind bars and you have nothing to say about it? It just shows that uh, how elite they are and how out of touch they are, and, and, and it's look, a shame. If you want, make, make it a hit on Trump. I mean, he's the one who started the prosecution. So even when they had the chance under Trump to, like, really make it a Trump story about Julian Assange, they were more worried about, like, this or that of their friends who had something mean said about them yeah. or a mean tweet about them or their press pass revoked or whatever. So this is not a criticism of the, of the View, but more of, like, CNN and the big outlets. But oftentimes they have sources that are in the CIA or the FBI or the intelligence agencies, and they just repeat whatever those sources tell them. They do stenography for those sources, and they think they're doing Havana news. Havana syndrome comes and, to mind. Right, exactly. <laughs> and But that's why you don't get accurate reporting on Julian Assange. It's because they've been told from their sources in, in the intelligence community that, like, oh, no, this guy's a traitor, and he did bad things, and people are getting hurt because of him or whatever. All bullshit. But that's why they say what they say, and it's disgusting because, again, you want to hold them accountable. You want to be a watchdog, not a lapdog. Yes. Very well said. So here's to those numbers continuing to go up of people realizing that the media truly is the enemy of the people. Um, that brings us to our guest, Johan Hari, who I am really excited to talk to. His new book is called Stolen Focus. Let's get right to it. Welcome, Johan. Great to see you. I'm so happy to be with you guys. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. Um, all right. So let's just start with the top of the book. What made you want to write about how all of our attention and focus has been stolen? So I noticed that with each year that passed, it felt like things that require deep focus, that are really deep part of myself, like reading a book, watching long movies, were getting more and more like running up a down escalator. I could still do them, but they were getting harder and harder. And I could see this was happening to loads of people around me. I was particularly worried about the young people in my life who seemed to be kind of whirring at the speed of Snapchat where nothing still or serious could touch them. But for a long time, I reassured myself by saying, oh, this is just a perennial human concern, right? You know, you get older, your attention gets worse. Humans have always struggled with attention. You can read a letter a thousand years ago where one monk writes to another going, oh, my attention ain't what it used to be. But then when I started to dig into this a little bit, I, I was, I was saw that there were quite a lot of facts that seemed to reinforce my sense that, for example, for every one child who was identified as having serious attention problems when I was seven years old, there's now 100 kids who are identified with that problem. And um, the average American office worker now focuses on any one task for only three minutes. So I started to rethink, really well, 
it, it does seem like something new is happening here. So particularly after a kind of traumatic experience with a young person in my life that I can talk about more if you like, I realized, okay, I'm going to use my training in the social sciences at Cambridge University. I'm going to really dig deeply into the science of this. So over three years, I went and interviewed over 200 of the leading experts on focus and attention across the world, from Miami to Melbourne to Moscow. And I learned from them and by digging really deeply into their research, that there's scientific evidence for 12 factors that can make your attention better or can make it worse. And loads of the factors that can make your attention worse have hugely risen in the last few years, in recent times. And we really are in a serious attention crisis. In fact, Professor Joel Nigg, one of the leading experts on children's attention problems in the world, said to me that we need to ask if we're now living in what he called an attentional pathogenic culture, one where we are all struggling to pay attention. And the key thing to understand, this is me talking now, not him, is that we need to see that our attention didn't collapse our attention has been stolen from us. And once you understand that, it opens up a different set of solutions to this, to this crisis. So, um, I mean, that's a, it's a fascinating topic of conversation, but it gets me thinking about, you know, society more generally. And my question is, do you think that the lack of attention is more related to modern society in general, just not stimulating our creative capacities because of the limits of the way our economy functions and whatnot? Or is it like just the technology? Oh, it's definitely not just the technology. The technology plays a really important factor, but it, and, it, and it's key to understand that it's specific aspects of our technology, not the existence of the smartphone and the laptop. We can explore that more. But the way I came to think of it, I think you've gone to a really, you've gone to the heart of it there, Kyle is if you think of this, the increasingly invasive aspects of our technologies, which are the aspects which are designed to hack and invade our attention. If you think of those as like a virus, they would have been powerful at any point in human history when they came along. They would have had a certain amount of inherent power, but they came along at a moment when it's like our collective immune system was down. We had already made a whole series of changes that were profoundly affecting and damaging our ability to focus and pay attention. From the food we eat, the food supply system profoundly damages our ability to focus and pay attention. From the way childhood works, we've, been, we've had transformations in childhood that we can get to that make it much harder for kids to form and develop focus in the first place. From something as simple as lack of sleep, we sleep 20% less than we did a century ago. Um, and as a result, we really struggle to focus and pay attention. So. It's both elements. It's the invasive tech, which we can deal with, and loads of these deeper societal factors, which make us more vulnerable to that tech in the first place. Think about something as simple as if you haven't slept well, how much easier it is to find yourself the next day scrolling through TikTok for hours, right? That kind of effect is playing out at a societal level because of all sorts of factors. Does, does that make sense? Does that ring true to you, Kyle? Yes. Yes, it does. You know, one of the things that kind of drove this point home for me that you make in the book is that while these trends and difficulties in focus and limited attention span and the way that we all feel like, I mean, I personally feel like I have trouble holding a thought in my head for like three seconds, um, <laughs> that this has accelerated over the past uh, several years. 
And I think the pandemic, and this is something else I want you to talk about, but the pandemic has then further accelerated those trends and brought them to light in an even more dramatic way. But the trend towards decreasing attention and focus is actually not new. You trace it back to the 1880s. So it's sort of like, you know, industrial revolution kind of stuff. Could you talk a little bit about the data that supports that conclusion and what you think is going on with that? Yeah, I'll talk about that in a second, but I have to tell you something, which is a weird and funny illustration of one of the theories in the book. So there's all this evidence that um, you ha um, if you have to filter out too much stimuli like noise, it damages your attention. And I don't know if you can hear this, but I'm in a hotel in Miami and they're doing some hammering mm. and it's really damaging my attention. And I, I'm worried that I'm going to turn, you know, that famous clip of Lawrence O'Donnell? Yeah, stop the like, hammering! Stop the hammering! <laughs> <laughs> stop the hammering! Phone Phil Griffin, stop that. <laughs> um, but yeah, so you're absolutely right. Remind me to come back to COVID in a second because you've, you've asked about a really important thing there. The study you're talking about, which goes back to the 1880s, is really important because it's the first study that showed that our collective attention span really is declining. And it helps us to begin to understand some of the deep roots of it. So I have to pause just one second to rub my nose. Sorry. If you've, if you've ever written a book about legalizing drugs, you have to be very careful when you have a cold to not have a cold. <laughs> <laughs> the, so, um, and I went to interview Professor Suna Lehman, who's at the Technical University in Denmark, who, who was one of the key authors on this study. And Professor Lehman was really worried because he would wake up every morning and his he was woken up every morning by his little sons who would come and jump on his bed and jump all over him. And he loves his sons. But absolutely instinctively, he would not reach for his sons and look at them. He would reach for his phone and he would start looking at that. And he felt like something was really awry. But he also, like me, thought, well, you know, maybe everyone thinks this every generation, right? So he pioneered, <clears throat> along with his colleagues, a really important piece of research. They wanted to figure out, is our collective attention span declining? And they started with some really simple data. They looked at um, Twitter hashtags. So... Obviously, I'm guessing almost everyone watching knows, but in case they don't, when lots of people discuss a topic on Twitter, uh, the algorithms will pick it up and it will explain, it will it will show that those are trending topics, right? So if, I don't know, Justin Bieber fell into a hole an hour from now, <laughs> Bieber in a hole would trend on, on, on Twitter. I don't know where that came from in my head. Apologies to Justin Bieber, right? So it picks up on the things that people are collectively talking about. And what they looked at is, uh, initially, in, in 2013, when a topic trended on Twitter, it would they learned that it would trend on average for 17.5 hours. But by the time you got to 2016, that had hugely declined. In fact, any topic would only trend for 11 hours. So it turned out that we were focusing less on any one thing between those years. But, you know, Professor Lehman thought, OK, maybe this is just a quirk of Twitter. So they did an enormous amount of research. They studied Reddit, they studied Google searches, they studied almost everything on the internet which is like this. And with one exception, Wikipedia, what they found is there was the, the graph looked exactly the same. Collective attention was declining and declining and declining with each year. But then they decided to do a deeper piece of research which to me is much more important. So as you know, Google Books has scanned whatever it is, many millions of books. And they figured out a mathematical technique that could look at, that could figure out effectively 
trending topics in the past. So there are always new phrases that emerge. Think about, I don't know, New Deal Brexit, sorry, No Deal Brexit, right? Mm -hmm. No one had ever used the phrase No Deal Brexit before 2016. No one will ever use it again, except for historians. It was a phrase that emerged and then went away, right? Mm -hmm. Or think about the Harlem Renaissance. We can all think of things in the past, right? So what they did is they developed an algorithm that could scan all the books and figure out, well, what topics emerged and what topics faded. And what they found was really odd. For every decade that passed, our collective attention was getting worse and worse. We were focusing on any one topic less and less. And they started that research in the 1880s. And for every decade since the 1880s, the graph looks like the graph from Twitter from 2013 to 2016. Decline, 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 decline. Now, collective attention is different to individual attention, but this fits with a wider body of evidence that our individual attention is also collapsing. And this is a disaster for all sorts of reasons. I would just say to anyone listening, think about anything in your life you've ever achieved that you're proud of, whether it's you know starting a business, writing a screenplay, being a good parent, learning to play the guitar, whatever it might be, that thing you're proud of required a lot of sustained focus and attention. And when focus and attention break down as they are breaking down now, your ability to achieve your goals breaks down. Mm. Your ability to solve your problems breaks down. And I think what happens, and I felt this happening to me, it's one of the reasons I wrote Stolen Focus, is that you you become almost kind of stump, almost like a stump of yourself. You can sense what you might have been if you've been able to focus, but you you feel like you can't quite get there. You can't quite apply yourself, which is why we need to understand these deep factors that are doing this to us. And most importantly, build the solutions to it. And one of the things that encouraged me is I've seen the beginning of these solutions all over the world. Yeah. I mean, to your point, yeah, the dedication and the commitment is an important thing because it pays dividends in the long run. And it also gives you the ability to tap into the zone or a flow state if you have that extended focus on something. And I know you touch on that as well. Um, and you've seen evidence of what you're talking about with political scandals. You get the sense that a lot of the modern era political scandals absolutely would have tanked political candidates in like 1986 or 1994. But now mm -hmm. there'll be this big political scandal. It's trending on Twitter for like three hours, then it's gone and nobody thinks about it ever again. And then and next thing you know, Jeffrey Tubin's back on your television screen. <laughs> and, and, he's, <laughs> and, and he's beating off. But anyway, um, so um, how much of this is attributable to let's say in the modern era with technology, that there's just too much stimuli, like there's too much stuff going on all the time. So it's only natural to like, you know, go from this thing to that thing to that thing. Sorry, the mental image of Jeffrey Tubin masturbating. much more for that. It's a bit hammering. No, you're right. So there's several factors going on. So one is, um, one is what you're describing, but I actually think there's a different so in the book, I talk about both the destruction of our individual attention and the destruction of our collective attention, uh, which are, of course, closely interrelated and have many of the same causes. But that destruction of our collective attention that you're describing, I think, is, is related to something, to, to one of the causes that I write about in, in, in the book. I think it actually relates to something that you guys talk about all the time in a really important way in trying to get beyond this, this way of thinking. So... I think it helps think about it in 
let's talk about it individually and collectively. So obviously, a big element in what's happening are some aspects of our technology are profoundly damaging our focus and attention. It's only one of the 12 causes I write about. Actually, to my surprise in the research, I came to the conclusion it's not the biggest, although it is very substantial. And I think it helps to think about this, 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 this issue you're talking about, this kind of the way we think about scandals. Um, if we understand what I think is the key element in our current technology that is damaging our focus and attention. So at the moment, all of social media is built around one specific business model. And I learned about this by interviewing many of the people who've been at the heart of building that business model. And the business model is super simple. Every time you pick up your phone and open Facebook or TikTok, they make money. And every time you put it down, their revenue stream disappears. So all of their engineering power, all of their algorithmic genius, all of this mathematical um, uh, talent that they're marshalling all the time is geared towards one thing, figuring out how do I get you and your kids to pick up your phone as often as possible and scroll as long as possible. That's it. Just like the business model for KFC is how do I get people to eat fried chicken? The business model for these apps is entirely to get to invade your attention as much as possible. And this is what they admit when they're being indiscreet. Sean Parker, one of the biggest initial investors in Facebook, admitted, he said in public, we designed Facebook to maximally invade people's attention. We knew what we were doing and we did it anyway. God only knows what it's doing to our kids' brains. But the political aspect that I find really disturbing comes to, I think is really important in relation to what, what you're saying, Kyle, because that business model, which is about maximizing engagement, getting people to scroll as long as possible, bumped into an underlying psychological truth that led, has led to and is leading to a horrific political outcome. So the algorithms are designed to keep you scrolling. That's all they care about. And they bumped into a human truth, which has been known about for a long time. It's called negativity bias. Anyone who's ever seen a car crash knows what negativity bias is. You will stare at something that angers and upsets you longer than you stare at something that makes you feel good. So you stared longer at the car wreck than you did at the pretty flowers on the other side of the street. This is very deep in human psychology. 10 week old babies will stare longer at an angry face than a happy face. Probably for a very good reason in our evolution, you wanna be alert to things that are frightening and shocking, right? But this has a horrific effect when it combines with algorithms designed to maximize engagement. So picture two teenage girls who go to the same party and they go home on the same bus. And one of them does a status update where she says, that was a really nice party. Everyone looked great, I had a good time. And the other one goes, Karen was a fucking skank at that party. She's a hoe, her boyfriend's a prick, everyone stank as shit. So I spend a lot of time with my niece trying to help her recover from social media. So this is why I have an uncanny knowledge of how teenage girls talk on social media. So algorithms are constantly scanning for the kind of words that keep people scrolling. And the algorithm will pick up on the first status update and it'll put it in a few people's feeds. It'll pick up on the second status update. It'll see that they're angering and engaging words. It knows that people stare longer at them it will put them into far more people's feeds because people will go, what do you mean Karen's a skank? You're a skank. You can see how the argument happens, right? Now that is terrible enough at the level of two teenage girls on a bus. That has happened to our whole society, right? Negativity bias promotes rage, fleeting rage all the time. This is why, for example, Jair Bolsonaro, the far right leader of Brazil, who you guys have talked about brilliantly, um, what did his supporters do the night he won the election unexpectedly? They stood outside and they chanted, Facebook, 
Facebook, Facebook, because they knew that he couldn't have won without these algorithms promoting his enraging, vile, bitter content. Think about the fact that countries as different as Britain and Brazil have polarized profoundly in the same way. So this underlying dynamic is destroying our collective attention in catastrophic ways. So we have to get a handle on it. And there are very practical ways we can stop this. We have to get a handle on it to protect our individual attention in all sorts of ways we can talk about and to protect our collective attention. So um, first of all, skank is an underused word. Um, <laughs> totally, yeah. And I'm, I really appreciate uh, you, you helping to bring it back, um, number one. And I support any efforts pay Facebook would make in that regard as well. Um, but more seriously, you know, the, the piece of this that starts to make me uncomfortable is that a lot of the people who make a similar argument as what you're making of, you know, Facebook led to Bolsonaro's election or, you know, the Bernie memes on Facebook were blamed for the election of Donald Trump. Right. Seems yeah. to me to be, you know, preposterously silly, especially when you look at how few of them there actually were in the context of this gigantic election and all the money that was ultimately spent. Usually the next step of that argument is, therefore we need to give these tech companies more power mm. to censor more, decide more, what goes in your feed. They need to be more selective rather than, and that's not actually what you argue for in the book, but rather than taking an approach that would say, no, we need to have actually more democracy, more public input, more transparency. We need these spaces that are now the public square to effectively be nationalized as one potential direction. So um, just weigh in a little bit on your thoughts on that and also what you're actually advocating for, which in, in the book, you make a compelling case that we should just ban this kind of surveillance capitalism. What is that and what does that mean? Yes, I passionately agree with you. We oh, well, A, on the skank point, if, when I die, if the New York Times obituary says, Johan Hari, comma, 91, comma, rehabilitator of the word skank, <laughs> that will have been a very good life as far as I'm concerned. But, no, you're, you're absolutely right that, that, that I think sort of American liberals are reacting in the worst possible way to this, which is to demand that Mark Zuckerberg becomes the kind of censor for the world. That is not the solution that is a dystopian hell, right? And I think it helps to, to step back and think about, so Tristan Harris, who lots of you will know the work of, I think he's a, one of the great heroes of our time, was at the heart of Google, was horrified by what they were doing, quit and has become one of the key figures in arguing that we need to deal with these problems. And I've spent a lot of time with him and have become friends with him. Tristan has a really good metaphor for this. So he says, think about what we've just been saying about negativity bias. He says, what's happened is, if you picture it, is the whole landscape has been tilted more towards insanity, right? Insane claims, aggressive, abusive claims are promoted in this system and sane, normal claims are not. We know the leaks from YouTube um, that if you, um, if you search for a video about dieting, within three steps, it would recommend anorexia videos. If you search for just factual information about the Holocaust, within three chains of the recommendation algorithm, it would recommend Holocaust denial. If you search for information about 9-11, it would recommend so-called 9-11 trutherism. So the way Tristan describes it, I think it's a good metaphor, is the whole system is tilted and loads of rocks start to fall down. And what these people are saying is, oh, the solution is just to build something to catch the rocks falling. That's not the solution. The solution is to stop the entire landscape being tilted in these insane ways. And I think there's all sorts of practical ways we can do that. 
The key is not to give more power to big tech, but to profoundly disempower them. And there's an analogy that I think really helps us to understand, because that can sound like, oh, fuck, how are we ever going to do that, right? But there's an analogy in American history that I think really helps us to understand this. So you'll remember just about, I can just remember it from my childhood, that it used to be normal for people to put leaded gasoline in their cars, right? And before our time, it was very normal for people to paint their homes with leaded paint. And go right back to the 1920s, it was known that exposure to lead in the air through these things absolutely fucks your ability to focus and pay attention, particularly for children. It's profoundly damaging for children's brains. But what happened is the lead industry funded a complete pseudoscience to deny these effects and actually to blame mothers. So it said, well, actually, the problem is these mothers just are lazy and don't dust their homes enough. And that's why the lead is affecting their kids, right? Grotesque. And they particularly blamed it on black and brown mothers because they were disproportionately affected by this. Um, grotesque. Um, so what happened? By the 1970s, it, the science was so overwhelming that the lead industry's denials weren't working anymore. So a movement of ordinary moms banded together, it was overwhelmingly mothers, and just said, no, we're not going to allow this. Why are we allowing these companies to profit from profoundly damaging our children's brains? And it's really important to think about what they didn't demand. They didn't say, let's ban all paint. They didn't say, let's ban all gasoline. They said, let's ban the lead in the paint and in the gasoline. And they prevailed. There was a mass movement. They prevailed. They succeeded. Lead was banned. We're all exposed to vastly less lead. There's still, as we all know from the horrendous news, from some parts of the United States, there's still lead piping. That's unfortunately one of the parts that got left out of the Build Back Better program, thanks to Joe Manchin. Let's not talk about that. But the 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 so there's still some lead exposure, but it's dramatically less than it was. I think there's a real analogy with the tech which is, so uh, one of the people who really helped me to understand this is Aza Raskin, who invented a key part of how the internet works. And his dad, Jeff Raskin, actually invented the Apple Macintosh with Steve Jobs. And Aza said to me, look, the solution here is really simple. We need the first step to deal with this component of the attention crisis, I stress again, this is one of the 12, is you have to ban the current business model, what Professor Shoshana Zuboff calls surveillance capitalism. Just a business model that is premised upon figuring out the weaknesses in your attention in order to hack them and sell them to the highest bidder is fundamentally inhuman and immoral. It's like exposing children to lead. We will not allow it, we ban it. So I said to Aza and many of the other dissidents in Silicon Valley who proposed this solution to me, okay, let's imagine we do that. What happens the next day when I open Facebook? Does it just say, sorry guys, we've gone fishing? <laughs> and he said, of course not. What would happen is they would have to move to a different business model. And what's crucial about that is all the incentives change when you get a different business model. So there's two possible business models and everyone listening has some experience of both. The first is subscription. We all know how Netflix and HBO work. Okay, you'd pay a certain amount, you get your access. The second option, which would be my preferred option, would be, think about the sewers. Everyone listening is connected to the sewers through their bathroom, right? Before we had sewers, we had shit in the streets, we got cholera, it was awful. So we all paid to build the sewers together and we all own the sewers in common. You own the sewers in whatever city you live in. Um, it may be that just like we own the sewage pipes together, we wanna own the information pipes together because we're getting the equivalent of cholera for our attention, for our politics. Now, it would be very important that that, that machinery was owned independently of government, 
we, of course, we can all imagine what Donald Trump would have done if he controlled it. A good model, I think, for all its flaws would be the BBC. The BBC is directly accountable to British people. Every British person with a television pays a license fee to the BBC. It's independent of the government. Um, and I mean, the British, the current terrible British Conservative government is trying to destroy it, but set that aside for a century. It's been a great model of that. In a similar way, you could just have a small tax on everyone who has broadband and together we could own this. But the key thing to understand about that is it changes the incentives. If the business model is the more you scroll, the more money they make, they will keep figuring out ways to keep you scrolling. But under this, these different business models, all the incentives change. Suddenly they're not like, hey, how do we hack Kyle in order to get him to pick up his phone more and scroll more? Suddenly the incentive is, oh, Kyle is now our customer. He's not the product we sell to advertisers anymore. What does Kyle want? Oh, Kyle wants to be able to pay attention. Let's design our app to do that. Oh, Kyle wants to be able to meet up with his friends offline. Let's design it to facilitate that. All the incentives change, but you have to have a movement to make them do it. Just like the lead industry was never gonna say, hey guys, I think we've made enough money now. Let's stop poisoning kids, right? They had to be made to do it. The social media companies have to be made to do it. So, so don't you think to one extent or another that the problem might even be a little deeper than that in that it's a human nature problem? Because I actually, I've advocated for quite a long time for a solution similar to what you're talking about, just because I think it would make social media more free uh, more open, there'd be less censorship if you effectively regulate them like their public utilities and expand First Amendment protections. But I still think even under a system like that, I do think um, you're still going to have this more general issue because I've seen it firsthand. I know you have, Crystal. When I do um, a segment on my show on YouTube where it's very substantive, let's say, like I just did a segment on uh, like a hundred people being massacred in a in a bombing in Yemen that the UAE did, and that video for me got twenty thousand views. Then I have some other video about you know whatever some interpersonal beef or me going after some right wing commentator, and then that video gets like a hundred thousand views. So even though one is like more substantive, it's more fruitful, it's more important. It's like that didn't do as well. And even though I have a lot of faith and confidence in my audience that they're you know, generally very intelligent, at the same time, isn't some of this just like the problem is us. The problem is that you're going to be able to trip the wires in the head, even if the incentives aren't lined up in the way that they currently are. Even if we try to improve the incentives, people are going to be like, damn, Rachel is a skank and I want to talk about that. <laughs> so I think there's some truth in what you're saying, but I think it's worth remembering, sorry, poor Rachel, whoever she is, not a skank. <laughs> but the, the, I think there's some truth in, in, in what you're saying, but we have to see it in a context. So, of course, you have to bear in mind, if you look at YouTube's algorithms, so what are the words that most promote videos on YouTube? You know this much better than I do. Hates, obliterates, destroys. Those are the three best words to promote virality on, on YouTube, right? So you're getting less hits for your UAE video in a machinery designed to promote anger, stupidity, and rage, right? Now, but you're absolutely right. There's a degree to which this is a perennial human dilemma. And there's an analogy that I think can really help us to think about this, which is the obesity crisis. I spent a lot of time discussing this with Professor Joel Nigg, an amazing man who's arguably the leading expert on children's attention problems in the world, certainly one of the, the top five. And, and he drew this analogy with obesity. So think about obesity. If you look at a picture of a beach, in the United States in 1970, it's really weird when you look at it 
because everyone is what we would call slim or buff, literally everyone. And you sort of think, but where's all the, what we would call normal people? Where are they, right? And, and you look at the figures for obesity and there was almost no obesity in the United States in 1970. And then there were a huge series of changes in how we live. Our food supply system completely changed, also damages our attention, we can talk about that. We built cities, it's impossible to drive, and uh, sorry, impossible to walk and bike around. And we became much more stressed, which makes comfort eating much more appealing. So we had an obesity crisis. We responded primarily by blaming ourselves, torturing ourselves, trying to starve ourselves, which has been a disaster. So you could say, I know you wouldn't say this, but one could say, so that's when a British person uses the word one, it always just sounds weirdly like the queen, but you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. One could say, well, there's always been a human dilemma about eating too much, right? Whenever there's been a surfeit of food, there's been some people who overate. It's true. If you look at 1970, there were some obese people, right? But there's vastly more obese people now than there were then because we've created an environment that is loaded towards distraction, towards debasement. And the way Tristan Harris puts it is we've upgraded technology and downgraded humans. And it's not just the tech that's done that. Does that ring true to you, Carl? Push back on me if you think it isn't. I'm interested in your thoughts. Yeah, so it does It does ring true to an extent. I guess my only issue would be, let's say you create an algorithm that makes it so that, say, my UAE video was pushed more and the interpersonal beef one wasn't pushed as much you still have the issue of, well, then who gets to make those decisions as to what gets pushed and what doesn't get pushed? Because my concern is anytime you have like um, a system of overlords to one extent or another who are making the decisions, that's always unfortunately going to skew in a pro-establishment direction because it's the establishment by definition making those decisions. So that's why I've always been more of an advocate of like a hands-off algorithm where it really is sort of like the cream rises to the top. And unfortunately, with the cream rises to the top type system, you are going to get the occasional like Alex Jones psychopath who becomes wildly popular, and then you have to deal with all the downsides of his misinformation. But I just think that's the least bad option because along with getting some Alex Jones psychopaths, you also get phenomenal independent media creators who are very you know, rigidly factually based, and they get popular as well. So I guess I'm more uh, just like a hands-off um, libertarian type when it comes to how you create the algorithm. And I just think some of the downfalls with our attention, while it can be managed to a certain extent, um, I think the problem more is us than, than maybe the system, even though the system plays a tremendous part, like you just described so eloquently in, you know, making us to use the weight example, way like fatter and unhealthy today compared to the 1970s. I think there's some truth in what you're saying. This will always be a human dilemma and there's no perfect system. But at the moment, we've got a system that's rigged towards activating the worst in our attention. I think that's true, yeah. And our collective attention. And if we recalibrate the machinery, you know, we can weight it more towards the better and healthier parts of our attention. And that's just one of the enormous social changes that I think would, that we can fight for, a lot of which combine with, you know, and uh, uh, combine is not the right word, kind of elide with the a lot of the things you guys talk about. So think in a, a, a much wider social agenda. So think about the fact that, um, if I, remind me to come back to COVID as well, Crystal, I've just remembered you asked about that before and I didn't, didn't say anything. But think about the fact, one of the biggest factors that is driving um, our attention crisis at the moment is that Americans are fucking exhausted, right? They are, 40% of Americans 
are chronically sleep deprived. We sleep 20% less than we did a century ago, according to the National Sleep Foundation. Children sleep 85 minutes less than they did a century ago. There's all sorts of reasons, but I went to two places that have built solutions that we can fight for collectively. So in France in 2018, they had a huge crisis of what they called le burnout, which I don't think I need to translate. <laughs> and the French government, under pressure from labor unions, they would never have done it without huge work organization. Um, set up an inquiry to figure out what the hell was going on. And this inquiry discovered the key, the biggest factor, which was that 35% of French workers felt they could never stop checking their phone or their email because their boss could message them at any time of the day or night. And if they didn't answer, they'd be in trouble. So I can give those people all the lovely self-help lectures about the benefits of sleep and unplugging and everything else. They just can't do it, right? It would be a taunt to them to tell them to do it. And that's a huge change. When I was a kid, the only people who were on call were doctors and they weren't on call all the time, right? So the French government, again, crucial to understand because of the labor union pressure, um, decided to introduce a new law. It's very simple. It's called the right to disconnect. It gives every French worker two rights. The first is your work hours have to be defined legally in your contract. And secondly, you have a legal right to never have to check your phone or your email after your work hours are over. That's so I went awesome. to yeah, and so I went to Paris before the plague, obviously, spoke to people about this. Uh, Rent-A-Kill, the pest control company, got fined just before I was there, 70,000 euros for trying to get one of their workers to check his email an hour after he, he got off work. So, and this is really important to me because there's two levels at which we've got to fight this attention crisis. There's defense, there's all sorts of things that we can do in our own individual lives, but there's also got to be offense. We've got to go against these forces. And actually when we tame these forces and the right to disconnect is a good example, what that does is it frees people up to make the individual changes that lots of them already want to make anyway. Well, if it's okay, I'll give you another example of a place that led to a a big change um, that, that, that I think we can all fight for. So in New Zealand, I went to a company called Perpetual Guardian, who make wills and trusts. And they had a boss named Andrew Barnes. Now, most people are not going to have a boss like this. It's why we need a collective fight. But Andrew had worked unbelievably hard in his 20s. It had ruined his relationship with his kids. And he just quit it all and went to Australia. He was originally British, went to Australia and set up this company that became successful. And he always remembered this period when he had massively overworked and trashed his family life. Um, and he decided one day to do an experiment. He moved his entire company from a five-day week to a four-day week for the same pay he, because he figured his workers were exhausted and if he gave them an extra day off, they'd probably more productive, be more productive on the four days they did work. They would have slept better. They'd be happier. He figured, let's try it and see if we're more productive. And when he did a conference call and told everyone in the company, his head of HR literally fell over, right? Uh, so I went and interviewed everyone in one of his offices in Rotorua, which is a town in New Zealand. It's a kind of weird town that absolutely stinks of farts because they've got a sulfur problem there. But anyway, <laughs> other than that, very nice. I interviewed everyone who works in this office. And the way they talked about how their attention had transformed was fascinating. They slept more, they unplugged more. This was studied by the University of Auckland Business School. They 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 used social media less. They were just completely replenished. Um, and this is true of everywhere that's tried a four-day week. From Microsoft in Japan, where they saw that their 40 a 40% increase in productivity, to Toyota in Sweden, where they, they achieved 115% in four days of what they had in five. The Petrol Guardian concluded they achieved more in four days than they had in five. And I think for 
I, at first when I heard that, it seemed too good to be true. And then I went to interview this guy called Professor Jeffrey Pfeffer, who's at the University of Stanford, Stanford University. He's an expert on organizational behavior. And he said to me, it's not difficult to understand. Ask any sports team, do you want your team to walk onto the pitch exhausted having worked 10 hours the day before? Of course not. No sports fan wants that. Why would the rest of us be any different, right? So a society that is chronically exhausted, a society that is eating food that isn't anything like the fuel that human bodies need, a society where we don't sleep, a society where we're breathing polluted air that inflames our brains, a society where we're switching tasks all the time because the technology we use is designed to hack and invade our attention. This is going to be a society where people really struggle to focus. But there's we've got to fight for these big collective solutions as well as the individual solutions, or we're not going to overcome this. So it seems to me, and this is what actually concerns me that the changes that would be necessary are more akin to like the uh, slavery abolition movement than something that's relatively limited as getting lead out of out of paint and out of public consumption. Because there you're talking about one industry. You're not talking about really fundamentally shaking like the roots of capitalism. People can still make paint. They just can't make paint that has <laughs> lead in it. But what you're talking about, I mean, it really does go into sort of every aspect of our consumerist capitalist life. Tech is the obvious kind of villain here. And they are phenomenally powerful. These are the richest and most powerful people on the planet. Um, but it's not just tech. I mean, you talk about the big food and the way that's destroyed, you know, for our kids, the diets that they're eating. And again, it's not really their fault. It's society has pushed these cheap, crappy junk foods on mm. our families. You know, it's the fact even to the point of people sleeping less. That's also basically because of capitalism, because the time mm. you're sleeping is the time that you can't be a good little consumer out there on five different devices being served ads and trying to lure you into buying something or, you know, slicing and dicing what your preferences are to be sold, repackaged and sold again. So it seems to me that what you're talking about, if you really want to get at the roots of the problem, it's much bigger than the equivalent of getting the lead on of the paint. It is something like, you know, the anti-slavery movement, which was a whole upending of an entire business model and way of going about capitalism at the time. I really appreciate that you get the depth of what I've tried, what I've tried to say in the book, because I've been doing so many interviews where people are like, I explained everything I just said, and they said, so what's the one thing I should do in my personal life? <laughs> like, I mean, I can recommend, I do recommend lots of things people could do in their personal lives, but I keep trying to say, it's like someone is pouring itching powder over us all the time and then leaning forward and going, hey, buddy, you might want to learn how to meditate. Then you wouldn't scratch so much. And you want to go, yeah, I'll learn to meditate, but fuck you, you need to stop pouring itching powder on me. Right? So, right. There's a few things I would say in response to what you said, Crystal, because I think you're, you're totally right. Um, one, it reminds me a little bit of, um, you guys will remember this better than I do, but in one of the debates in the primaries, um, Bernie, someone challenged him about the cost of dealing with the climate crisis. And he said, I'm not going to remember his words, he said it better than this. But he said, what do you think the cost of not dealing with the climate crisis is? It's far greater than the cost of dealing with it. And a lot of people, I remember, re-quoted re that when you had the huge California fires not very long ago. In a similar way, you're right, this is a big fight. I would say, what's the cost of not dealing with it? And Professor Lehman, who I mentioned before, he did that big study about collective attention. I, I remember when, when the day I saw him, I think it had been the day before, a photograph had been released 
And it's a photograph of Mark Zuckerberg standing in front of an audience. And everyone is wearing a VR headset, except for Mark Zuckerberg, who's walking freely among them. And Professor Lehman said to me something like, that's a vision of the future we're headed towards if we don't change trajectory, right? An increasingly degraded and debased population who are being constantly manipulated and an elite who meditate, do yoga, don't send their kids to Montessori schools, don't let them have these devices, who are manipulating us in this extraordinary way. So I think we're in a race. These factors that are invading our attention, including tech and far beyond them, are poised to become much more invasive. Think about how much more addictive TikTok is to your child than Facebook, right? Imagine the next iteration and the next iteration. On the other side, we've got to have a movement of all of us saying, no, you don't get to do this. And, and, and it requires a shift in consciousness. We have to say we are not medieval peasants at the court of King Zuckerberg begging for a few little crumbs of attention from his table. We are the free citizens of democracies and we own our own minds and we will not allow our minds to be corrupted in this way. But you've gone to the the daunting thing, Crystal, which is that that's a big fucking fight, right? And when I when I get daunted by it, this might sound odd, but I think a lot about my grandmothers, who I absolutely loved. My, I had a Scottish grandmother, a working class Scottish woman, and one who was a Swiss woman who grew up in a, and lived all her life in a wooden hut on the side of a mountain. And I loved my grandmothers. They were a huge influence on my life. And my grandmothers were the age I am now in 1963. And I think about their lives in 1963. Neither of them were allowed to have bank accounts in their own name. It was legal for their husbands to rape them. In practice, it was legal for their husbands to beat the shit out of them because the police never intervened. They had both left school when they were 13, um, even though the men in their families went on longer because no one gave a shit about girls learning anything. Uh, my Swiss grandmother wasn't even allowed to vote, right? And I think about how much my grandmother's lives were disfigured by this, this misogyny. And, and sexism and how they never got to fulfill their potential. They were incredible women. They never got to be who they could have been. And when people say to me, like you did totally understandably, and I think it myself, oh fuck, these are such powerful forces. I think these forces we're up against are not a tenth as powerful as men were in 1963. Men controlled every single institution of power in the world. They controlled every country, almost every company, every police force. Um, they, they had controlled all these institutions for as long as they'd ever existed, apart from a few hereditary female monarchs, right? And I think about, I don't want to, from, and I appreciate how annoying it is for a man to mansplain this to you, but I think about the gap from my grandmother, I don't want to underestimate for a minute how much further we have to go in achieving liberation for women. But I think about the gap from my grandmother's lives to my niece's life. My niece is 17. My grandmother, my Swiss grandmother, she loved to paint and draw. And she was told, shut up, don't be ridiculous, get into the kitchen. When my niece showed she was really good at drawing, we started Googling art schools, right? My grandmother would have been so glad to see that change happen. And it happened because ordinary women and some sympathetic men just said, fucking hell, we're not taking this anymore. We don't have to live like this. No, you're not going to do it to us. And I think the feminist analogy is a, is a really powerful one. It's probably in some ways better than the anti-slavery one, or the, the anti-slavery one is worth thinking about. Because feminism is a fight that had to happen at every single locus of power. It had to happen, and of course still is still happening and has to happen, in every office, in every school, and at the level of government, in every interpersonal relationship, in every family. Um, and in the same way, this attention crisis, you're right, is so deep, 
it has to be tackled a whole range of reasons. I talk about how we need to change how our schools work. If you wanted to design a system that would kill our children's ability to focus, you would design the school system we have in the United States. Or a whole range of things. But but I, what's the alternative? The alternative is we allow ourselves to be ever more downgraded and debased. At the moment, one small study backed by a wider body of evidence found that the typical American college student focuses on any one task for 65 seconds when they're online. I mean, on the current trajectory, we'll look back nostalgically on the time when kids could focus for 65 seconds, right? That That's not a tenable world. So I think the, we cannot fight back, just like with the climate crisis. We can let the whole thing burn down, but I, I don't think that's tenable. I think we have to fight back. Yeah, and I also think that the ability to solve long-term problems decreases if people can't you know, hold a thought for more than 15 seconds. So I think that's a, yeah. And, you know, I just, I just hope it's not part of this. Like, I just hope the, the, uh, cat's not too far out of the bag. Is that the saying cat out of the bag? Or did I just make that yeah. up? Yeah, you got it. Okay, no, 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 you're it. right. You're right. You're right. No, yeah. I, I, that's, that's something I worry about a lot. Just like with the climate, you get to tipping points. <laughs> yeah. My worry is that, of course, you can get to a point where our attention is so debased that we can't summon the attention to fight back. Right. And that, and that worries me, but I, I don't think we're at that point yet. I think people, I think to keep with the feminist analogy, I think actually at the moment we're in a sort of, we're in the, the stage my grandmothers would have been in 1963, which was my grandmothers hated what had been done to them, but they had no political feminist consciousness. They just thought, well, this is sucks, but this is the way the world is. And then, of course, the next generation of women had a huge amount of consciousness raising. And if I think about when I started working on, on Stolen Focus, my book, I had the equivalent of a pre-feminist consciousness. I just thought... Well, the problem here is I don't have any willpower. I'm not strong enough, right? What's wrong with me? Actually, I had a real weird moment in the research for the book very early on where I went to interview this guy called Professor Roy Baumeister, who is um, one of the leading psychologists in the world and, and the leading expert on willpower in the world. He wrote a book called Willpower. For everyone who's heard of the marshmallow test, he's the scientist who invented that. So I go to interview him and I'm like, so I'm thinking of writing a book about why people can't pay attention. I'm just trying to think this through. And he said something like, the exact words are in the book. He said something like, oh, it's interesting you should say that because um, I've just found I can't really pay attention anymore. I just play video games on my phone a lot. I just kind of, and I'm sort of sitting opposite him and I'm like, wait, didn't you write a book called Willpower? Mm. Aren't you? the leading expert in the world on willpower. And I was like, fuck it, this has happened to you. It was like the moment at the end of the body snatchers where they realize everyone's been body snatched. I was like, Jesus, if the willpower expert is sitting there saying he plays Candy Crush all day. Um, and it made me really realize this is, you know, there's a lot of things we can do as individuals that will strengthen our attention. There are lots of things I do to give an obvious example. Uh, stupidly, I'm pointing, but you can't see behind my laptop, obviously. Behind my laptop, I have something called a K-safe. It's a plastic safe. You take off the lid, you put in your phone, you put the lid on, you turn the dial and it will lock away your phone for anything between five minutes and 24 hours. I will not sit down with my boyfriend to watch a film unless we both lock our phones away. I won't sit down and have dinner with my friends unless we imprison our phone. In order to get to sleep at night, I lock my phone away two hours before I go to sleep so I can't crack and go, oh shit, this is one email I'm gonna check, right? So there's all sorts of individual things we can do, but, but we, we've gotta be honest, That'll help, but it'll only get you so far in an attentional pathogenic environment where you have to take on 
the the the, the bigger factors as well. Can I come back to COVID? Because I'm just keep realizing I haven't didn't answer your question, Crystal. You asked right at the start. Is that okay? Yeah, I I only half asked it. So yes, let's talk <laughs> about the pandemic and and how it's sort of accelerated. I mean, it's accelerated. It's accelerated inequality. It's accelerated the surveillance state, and it's accelerated the sort of loss of attention and focus that you track in the book. And deaths, yeah. accelerated deaths yeah. too. Wow, there's that as well. Oh yeah, <laughs> deaths. Oh you. Um, <laughs> the no, you're, you, you, it's interesting because I remember at the start of the pandemic, loads of people who were fortunate enough to not have to do the heroic work of being a nurse or or the other emergency services, saying things like, "Oh, I'm going to be shut at home for a long time. I'm going to learn French on Duolingo. I'm going to I'm going to read War and Peace." And it turned out no fucker read War and Peace and no one learned French. In fact, people Googling, how do I get my brain to work, went up by more than 300%. And I think I was quite well prepared to understand why. And I was really helped to understand it by one of the experts I interviewed. I stress, I was talking to her before COVID, so she wasn't commenting directly on COVID. But I think the lesson applies. She's called Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris, completely amazing woman who subsequently became the Surgeon General of California, the most senior medical figure in the state. And Dr. Burke Harris said to me when I interviewed her in San Francisco, okay, imagine one day you're walking down the street and out of the blue, you were attacked by a bear and you survive. In the weeks and months that follow, something completely involuntary would happen to your attention. You would find it harder to do something like read a book because a big part of your brain would just start scanning for risk and danger all around you, right? Because something came out of the blue to attack you, so your brain's like, fuck, what, the else is, what else is gonna come out of the blue and attack us, right? Okay, now imagine you were attacked by a bear again. You've gotta have pretty bad luck in this scenario, but imagine it. At that point, you would likely flip into a state called hypervigilance. Hypervigilance is where you can't focus on the things in front of you because you're just constantly looking out for risk and danger. Traumatized children often live in a state of hypervigilance. And there was a child psychologist, a wonderful man named Dr. John Giardini in Adelaide in Australia, who said to me, look, deep focus is a really good strategy when you're safe, right? You know, you read a book, you'll grow, you'll learn. Deep focus is a really dumb strategy if you're in danger. You'd be a fool to sit at the Battle of the Somme reading a novel. You're going to get shot in the head, right? You want In that situation, you want to be vigilant. We evolved to be able to provide deep focus only when we feel safe. Obviously, COVID came along and made us profoundly unsafe because of the virus, because of the way it upended our lives. And in a way, it's like the bear came back again and again and again in this third wave. It's like, oh, my God, what are we going to, you know, it came back again in a new mutation. It's profoundly disturbing, but this has bigger lessons even as we come out of the pandemic. It's really interesting. In uh, Finland, they did an experiment with a universal basic income. So there's loads of evidence that financial insecurity, which has exploded because the money of the society has been transferred to the top 1%, causes an enormous amount of stress. Anyone who's ever been broke, like I have at some in my life, understands this very well. If you don't have any money, one broken washing machine, one child's lost shoe can just fuck you, right? Um, and that causes hypervigilance or more vigilance, which undermines your ability to focus and pay attention. And in Finland, when they did an experiment with giving people a universal basic income, one of the most interesting findings I interviewed the scientists involved was that people's attention got much better because they were less stressed. So a society that's constantly stressing people out in order to extract profit from them is also going to be a society that is, I mean, I would argue very strongly that the child payments that have been introduced by the Biden administration, which are the, the single best thing that the, the president has done, would have 
significantly improved attention compared to what it would have been if they hadn't done that. Think about how much calmer you feel when you know you've got money, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, one question I have about in terms of moving forward into the future that I'm concerned about, you painted the image earlier of Mark Zuckerberg there without the VR headset and everybody around him with the <laughs> VR headset. I mean, they're making a big move into the metaverse. Everything I've seen there has been fairly dystopian. There are investors who are snapping up like million dollar properties on fake Rodeo Drive or oh. whatever. <sighs> I mean, what are what are your thoughts and opinions on the metaverse and how this could go wrong for us? You know, I interviewed this guy called Jaron Lanier, who's a uh, kind of legend in Silicon Valley, a brilliant tech designer and a really outspoken dissident. And he used to advise movies like Minority Report, dystopian movies, where they would, so he would design like technologies for a future dystopia. And he said to me, he stopped doing it because he kept designing these horrific technologies. And then loads of other tech designers would see it and go, hey, that's really cool. Let's make that. Oh, and he was my like, God. no, <laughs> that's wow. not what I meant. Literally, like, I can't ethically carry on doing it. I'm, I'm contributing to creating the dystopias that I meant to warn against. I mean, the metaverse is so obviously horrific that I feel like in a sense, all you need to do is explain to people what it is, this idea that we would be all interacting in a virtual world. It, you know, it reminds me, it comes back to right what you asked at the start though, Kyle, about how this interacts with a society where we don't want to be present because we're so stressed and we're so unhappy. Um, I went to this internet rehab center, the first ever internet rehab center in the world. It's just outside Spokane in Washington. And they get all kinds of people there, but they disproportionately get young men who've become obsessed with online multiplayer role player games and pornography. And it was so interesting talking to these guys and then later talking to Dr. Hilary Cash, who runs this center, incredibly wise woman. And I remember her saying to me, you've got to ask yourself, what do these young men get out of these games? Because they get something out of it, right? And what they get is often a sense they're good at something. We've created a society that does not make people feel they're good at anything, particularly young men. Um, they get a sense that they're physically roaming around. Uh, the figures on this are incredible. By 2003, only 10% of American children ever played outside without adult supervision. Um, they get a sense that they're being seen by other people. This is a profoundly lonely society. 41% of Americans before the epidemic agreed with the statement, no one knows me well. But what they're getting is a kind of parody of those things, right? And it's interesting talking to them because a lot of them have been obsessed with porn. And it was so interesting because I realized in a way, the relationship between social media and social life, I think is a bit like the relationship between porn and sex. I'm not anti-porn. Porn will meet a certain basic itch. But if your entire sex life consisted of looking at porn, you'd be going around kind of pissed off and grouchy all day because we didn't evolve to masturbate over screens. We evolved to actually have sex, right? And in a similar way, we did not evolve to interact through screens. But if you have a society that is deeply disconnected, that is where people have been filled with values that are profoundly wrong that lead them towards unhappiness, where they're acutely lonely, in a sense with the metaverse, I think you've got to ask two things. Firstly, how do we stop this horrific technological giant from increasingly invasive technology? But also, how the fuck did we create a culture where anyone would want to be in the metaverse? It's, it, it reminds me of, as you know, I wrote a book about addiction called Chasing the Screen that's just been made into an eight-part series with Samuel L. Jackson, which people can watch on Roku. It's called The Fix. Sorry, they told me to plug that. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I think a lot about, you know, 
the evidence, where is the opioid crisis happening? It's not actually happening in the places where it's easiest to get hold of opioids. Every single person on the faculty of Harvard has great medical insurance. Their doctors trust them. They could all go and get opioids tomorrow. And very few of them do. It's happening in places like somewhere I went, Monadnock, New Hampshire, where what happened in Monadnock, New Hampshire? People were stripped of the things that made life worth living. When a factory shuts down in a town, the rate of opioid overdoses doubles over the next five years, right? No one finds that difficult to understand. This is why Professor Ann Case and Professor Angus Dayton, who've done the best research on the opioid crisis, call them deaths of despair. There's been an enormous increase in deaths of despair, suicide, opioid deaths across the board. And they're all happening in the same place, which I think helps you to understand. They're also, by the way, the places that voted most for Trump which I don't mean as a cheap point, they are, you know, that too was a form of despair, a catastrophic one. Um, and, and in part, there are many things going on. And in a way, it feels to me like the metaverse is a death of despair, a society that will want to choose the metaverse um, will be a society that is despairing for the same reasons, to some degree, I wouldn't want to overstate it, as the, as the things that are driving the opioid crisis and so on. We've created a culture where people don't want to be present. Yeah. And they're not wrong. We've deprived people of very basic psychological needs. Everyone knows they have physical needs. You need food, you need water, you need shelter. But human beings just as much have natural psychological needs. You need to feel you belong. You need to feel your life has meaning and purpose. You need to feel you have meaningful work. You need to feel you have a future that makes sense. And this culture we built deprives most of the population of at least one of those needs. And I think the saddest part of all of it is that so now you have like the metaverse being created and um, you, you and I talked about this recently. What people are going to find is the same commercial interests that sort of destroyed normal life are yeah. will either destroy the metaverse or already are destroying the metaverse. Oh, and well, so they have complete you're control gonna, in the metaverse. Well, you're going to need escapism from the escapism in order to find <laughs> them. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. it's just a never-ending vicious cycle. So the metaverse is going to be all about NFT scams and porn, and you're going to need an escape from the escape. But um, my final question for you, because we're running out of time here, but uh, it's actually in as it pertains to your previous book. So now I'm somebody who, in my personal uh, experience and, uh, messing around with substances. I found that particularly at a low point in my life, it actually succeeded in giving me what I needed in order to continue to get through the hard times to then eventually dig it out of the dirt and grind and get back to some decent times. And what I find now that, you know, times are decent still every now and then, you know, enjoying partaking in substances. So, um, do you think in a similar way to what you just said about pornography before that like, yeah, look, I'm not anti-porn, but, you know, you also want to have sex, too. Do you feel the same way about about substances when it comes to uh, addiction or is it more of a, hey, maybe abstinence is a better thing when it comes to the substances and and we should uh, not rely on them as a crutch in any way, shape or form? Oh, no, you've got to separate out two things. So 90 percent of all currently illegal drug use is recreational drug use, right? person doesn't get harmed by it. It's not addictive. Dr. Carl Hart is at Columbia. My friend has done amazing work on yeah, this. Love that guy. And that's actually completely incredible. Also, literally the hottest man in the world. But uh, <laughs> it that I, 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 it's really embarrassing when I listen back to my interviews with him because I like to think I'm normally quite articulate in interviews. And basically, all I do is giggle and say, you're so right, Carl. <laughs> but the so no, and that, by the way, is true, even of the what we think of as the kind of devil drugs like meth, 
Most people who use meth do not become addicted and are not harmed by it. Now you have 10%, including some people in my own family who do get profoundly harmed. And what you have to ask is what's going on with them. And what's going on with them is the, the drug use combined with deep underlying despair. The core of addiction is about not wanting to be present in your life because your life is too painful a place to be. And it relates to some of the things we were just talking about with opioids. But you also made a really important point, Kyle, which is a difficult point to make about addiction. And I'm glad you make it because it's a brave point. You know, Marianne Faithful, the British singer, um, she, annoyingly, she's remembered for being Mick Jagger's girlfriend, which pisses me off because she's so much better than Mick Jagger and Mick Jagger's good. She has a line in her memoir that is very challenging and very powerful. She, she, had, she was homeless in the 60s for a while and she had a heroin addiction. And she says in her memoir, heroin saved my life because if it wasn't for heroin, at that point, I would have killed myself. Now, Marianne's mm. not saying heroin is a good solution to despair, obviously, for all the obvious reasons no one needs me to explain. But in that situation, it was the best solution that anyone offered her. And I've got a friend named Robert Banghart, who I think is the most admirable person I know. He lived in the drainage tunnels beneath Vegas for seven years. He now runs an incredible charity called Shine a Light that goes back into the tunnels and helps the people he lived with to get out, to get help. And Rob said to me, you can't do homelessness sober right? It's not possible. What makes it possible to survive in that terrifying environment is the drug use, right? Now, again, this is challenging because this is not saying drug use is a good solution to homelessness, obviously, right? You can see how it can be misunderstood. But we've got to understand that addiction, addiction is a response to deep pain. And there's an experiment that I think really helped me to understand. So if I've got two minutes, I'll explain yeah. to you, but if we're running out of time, yeah. No, go ahead. So, that really transformed how I think about addiction and that I learned about a lot for Chasing the Screen. So one of my earliest memories is of trying to wake up one of my relatives and not being able to. So this was very close to me. And when I started doing the research for that book exactly 10 years ago, if you'd said to me, let's say what causes heroin addiction, I would have looked at you like you're an idiot. And I would have said, well, the clues in the name Obviously, heroin causes heroin addiction. We've been told this story for 100 years that's become totally part of our common sense. I'm in, I'm in Miami. We think if I kidnapped the next 20 people who walked past this hotel in Miami and I injected them all with heroin every day, like a villain in a Saw movie, at the end of that month, they'd all be heroin addicts. For a simple reason, there's chemical hooks in heroin that their bodies would start to desperately physically crave. And that's why they'd be addicted. This is why we call it being hooked in English, the, you, you get a craving for the physical hooks. Now it turns out that's real, chemical hooks are real, the craving for chemical hooks is real, but it's a tiny part of what's happening with addiction. And there's lots of reasons we know this, but it was really unlocked for me when I went to Vancouver to interview an incredible man, one of the best people I've ever met, a man named Professor Bruce Alexander, who did an experiment in the 70s that has belatedly transformed how we think about addiction. So Professor Alexander explained to me the story we have about addiction, that it comes primarily or entirely from the chemical hooks, comes from a series of experiments that were done earlier in the 20th century. They're really simple experiments. Anyone listening, you can do these experiments at home if you want to. I don't recommend it, but you can. You take a rat, you put it in a cage, and you give it two water bottles. One is just water, and the other is water laced with either heroin or cocaine. If you do that, the rat will try both the water bottles and it will almost always prefer the drugged water and almost always kill itself within a couple of weeks. So there you go, that's our story. It tries the drug, it gets taken over by it, it takes more and more, it dies. 
But in the 70s, Professor Alexander looked at these experiments. He was working with people with addiction problems. He looked at these experiments and said, well, hang on a minute. You've put the rat alone in an empty cage where it's got nothing that makes life worth living for rats, right? All it's got is the drugs. Let's try this differently. So he built a cage that he called Rat Park, which is basically heaven for rats. They've got loads of friends. They've got loads of cheese. They've got loads of colored balls. They can have loads of sex. Anything a rat likes in life, it's there in Rat Park. <laughs> and they've got both the water bottles, the normal water and the drug water. This is the fascinating thing. In Rat Park, they don't like the drug water. They hardly ever use it. None of them use it compulsively. None of them overdose. So you go from 100% compulsive use and overdose when they don't have the things that make life worth living to no compulsive use and overdose when they do have the things that make life worth living. Now, there's loads of human examples that prove the same principle. I separate that from recreational drug use. Go into a bar tonight, you'll see people drinking. There'll be a small number of them who are alcoholics, but the vast majority are just drinking to have a good time. Almost all drug use is like that. But, but when it comes to addiction, I realized from this experiment and from all the changes it led to in the world, like it led Portugal to decriminalize drugs, that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. Valuable though that is to many people, the opposite of addiction is connection. Johan Hari, thank you so much for your time today. Um, the oh. new book is still in focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention and How to Think Deeply Again. Past books were Lost Connections, Why You're Depressed and How to Find Hope, the one you were just talking about, Chasing the Scream, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs, which I just learned is available. Where did you plug it again? Where is it available in the series? Oh, yes, it's Hulu? on Roku, the Roku. Roku channel. Or you can just watch it. If you just go to my Twitter feed, you can see links. You don't even have to have Roku. Uh, and it was very weird because Samuel L. Jackson is the narrator. And um, I, I wanted to ask him if he would record my answer phone message as his character from Pulp Fiction. But I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't quite bring myself to do it. I'm really fucking kicking myself. But when you hear Samuel L. Jackson saying words that you wrote, it is actually like a really fucking weird stress dream. It was it was very intense. So, uh, yeah, yeah, the, uh, but yeah, you can watch or you just you can just Google the fix Samuel L. Jackson and it'll be the, the first thing that comes up. Well, I and learned. Say, Go hmm. ahead. I meant to say that. Uh, my publishers give me this fucking ridiculous thing to read, which I can't read out. But I meant to say you can also get it as an audio book, an ebook, and a physical book. I'm also meant to say you can get it from all good bookstores, but the truth is you can also get it from shit bookstores as well. Uh, <laughs> but the, I also, um, yeah, they give me a long list of things I'm meant to say, but you can on the book's website, stolenfocusbook.com, you can listen for free to audio of interviews with loads of the experts that I've been talking about here. And yeah. um, I got in trouble at the end of a podcast about a year and a half ago because the host said to me, uh, it's relevant to know this guy was a 50-year-old man. The host said to me, so what's your Facebook? And I said it. And he said, what's your Instagram? And I said it. He said, what's your Twitter? And I said it. And then he said, what's your Snapchat? And I said, I am a 42-year-old man. The only 42-year-old man on Snapchat are certainly pedophiles, right? Yeah. <laughs> and he just laughed and I said, you know that series To Catch a Predator? Yes. The next season should just be they walk up to adult men in the street and say, what is your Snapchat profile? And if they have one, <laughs> immediately arrest just them. Arrest right? them. Just, like, even the ACLU would say, no trial for you. But obviously, a the, only, <laughs> the only caveat is that it's also for adults having affairs. So there's that. Okay. <laughs> no, no, you're fair. That's fair. But this guy Insider trading. There are other uses for it, Johan. <laughs> but mostly dick pics. <laughs> mostly dick pics. <laughs> This guy, I, I now want to know what your Snapchat handle is, Kyle, but this, <laughs> this guy didn't laugh at all. And I was like, oh, it's a bit funny. I thought, okay, maybe just to get my joke. Later, I looked it up. He's 50 and he's 
quite present on Snapchat. Oh, <laughs> I'm, I'm really glad that I got through this interview without accidentally calling either of you a pedophile. <laughs> now my low bar for all interviews. I don't know. You kind of just called Kyle what I did, so. um, No, you just... Either that or Making rampant, other accusations rampant dick pic sender. Yeah. <laughs> Which I fit the profile, let's be honest. I, mean, I look like I sent quite um, a few. All right. On a more serious note, everybody should get the book. I uh, I actually, I told you on Breaking Points, I listened to the whole thing on 2.5 speed, which kind of goes <laughs> against some of the core messages of the book. But I got a lot out of it. Uh, and one of the main things I got out of it was actually to stop giving myself a hard time and remember there are larger forces at work than one individual that are trying to um, grab this attention and focus from us. So, Johan, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Your kings and queens. Thank you so much. Hooray. Our pleasure. All right, so that was Johan Hari. Uh, very fascinating conversation. Uh, I would have liked to also get into his previous book more because, um, you know, my initial, my gut reaction to that one was a little bit like, I don't know, man. Because well, there's two. I think you're talking about the one about... Um, I'm talking about the one about depression. Depre okay, yeah. Because Chasing the Scream is, you know, against the war on drugs. Which is... That one I know you'd be right, totally into. Lost Connections is the one you're talking about. Why you're depressed and how to find hope. Because he basically argues that the antidepressant medications we've been sold have not been... Barely work, if at all. Yeah, see, that I'm, that I'm skeptical of. Because I know people who've taken them and made a tremendous difference in their lives. Yeah. And I'm generally, I generally think substances, like he, he even said there, like 90% of the time people who use substances, like it's recreation and it helps. Yeah. I think 90% of the time people who use that medication is probably helps. It's probably a good thing. Well, and so I, I don't want a false dichotomy. I also want to say, I it's been a while since I read the book and I really am worried that I just mischaracterized exactly what his argument is. So we should have him back well, and no, have that conversation. You're right. But that that's why, because that's why I said my gut reaction. Because I only heard his interview about it on Rogan. I didn't yeah. read his book. Yeah. So, but from what he was saying on Rogan, I didn't want people to get a sense of a false dichotomy of like, uh, you have antidepressants on this side and you have like a fruitful, productive life that'll make you happy on this side. Because I think that's a false dichotomy. I read the book and I, it, I think that's an overly simplistic right. well, that's um, good. overview of the book which is much more about some of the conditions that are ignored that lead so many people to be so anxious, depressed, stressed, that they end up on these medications. So I don't think it was quite as simplistic as like, the medications are bad, just have a better life. Right, because we all agree. The way it was portrayed. Every, I think every reasonable person agrees you have to fix the root conditions, and the root conditions are intricately tied into the way the economy functions. Yeah, and in the we way... have, especially here, a health system that's just like, here's a pill, because that's the thing that's profitable. Right. Right. Dealing with, you know, hey, what do we do to get, you know, what are the underlying, what are you sad about? What's stressing you out? Like, dealing with those things is not, doesn't make anybody any money. So mm -hmm. um, we tend not to do that. But on this book, you know, he really, another piece that um, was very interesting that he got into is the way that our food systems also have really taken away from our attention. I mean, it's, it's easy. We focused a lot on big tech, and he focuses a lot in the book on big tech as well. But it's only one of the nodes of our capitalist system that is sort of keeping us um, flitting from thing to thing to thing and definitely not at our best unless you know our best is as uh, as our highest purpose is like being the best possible consumer so that's why i feel like it's such a it touches on such a big problem 
because all of these things that are driven to distract us, it's all about how do I extract a little bit more profit out of you, whether it's like getting you to sleep less, getting you to eat crappy foods, getting you to be on five screens at once. Uh, that's all true, but I also, do, I personally, my take on it is there is a portion of this that's human nature, you know? Because I think about, think of Twitter, right? Who wants to read the 14 thread, 14 tweet thread where each one uses all the characters and it's like all, all these complexities and nuances and ins and outs of the argument. If you could take that 14 tweet thread and boil it down to two fire-ass tweets that are concise, mm -hmm. everybody's going to want to read the fire-ass tweets. Right. And that's not necessarily because of the mediums that have made it that way or the economy or the food or whatever. It's also because everybody's going to want to go gravitate towards the thing that is more concise and punchy. That's how we're wired. Right. So that's that's well, the other part the of this. Conflict. I guess the one thing I did think to ask him, I'd be curious your thought on this. On the other hand, the most popular podcast on the planet is Joe Rogan's where he, you know, typically goes two, I have an answer for this. two three hours right. and people really love it. So yeah, what do you think of that? Authenticity and honesty. And so if you try to do that podcast and you didn't have somebody completely wearing their heart on their sleeve, it wouldn't work. It's the fact that Joe, with everything he says, it's the equivalent of like the concise tweet. But that would that would argue that we do still have the ability or at least the desire to focus in for long periods of time because people are obviously doing it regularly there. And that's what I think. Yeah. That's what I think, which is why I think maybe him and I aren't exactly on the same page, although I do think he makes a lot of salient, brilliant points. Mm -hmm. But that is what I think. I've, I, I always felt like that. Like... Yeah, uh, on the one hand, there is sort of a war on our attention span. The different technologies around us lead us in that direction. And definitely the food has a similar effect. If you're all, you know, if you're on sugar 24-7 and you get the ups and the downs and the crashes and everything, that's going to affect it. But at the same time, um, when presented with an option that actually holds your attention, if somebody does that well, then you will. You'll be, you'll succumb to it and you'll be able to focus the whole time because you know i'm i'm big on like the the flow state yeah. and when you're in a flow state it's almost like complete zone of consciousness and awareness and attention yeah he talks about the flow state in the book yeah. and agrees with you on that and sort of sees that as one of the personal strategies to try to implement um, obviously is big on, big on the big structural changes, but there are personal strategies you can implement. And one of them is trying to think about what are the things that lead you into that deeper flow state where you're doing that sort of, where you're engaged in the moment, where you're present in the moment, where you're doing that sort of like deeper level thinking and to consciously try to spend more time in those activities than in the, you know, endlessly scrolling Twitter or whatever, which I don't think anyone's ever been in like a flow state scrolling through Facebook or Twitter. I think it is possible, actually. Maybe. I don't know. I think it is, which maybe is why I'm a little more hesitant, you know, than he is, where I'm not totally on the same page as him. You know, I've, a lot of the things he proposed as solutions, I think, are solutions that are good, but just not necessarily focused on this exact thing. Mm -hmm. He was talking about UBI and four-day work week, and I was like, right on, right on, right on. Yeah. But, I, you know, for economic security reasons, I want that, not necessarily because I think it's going to improve our attention span. I mean, I think the idea of banning surveillance capitalism, of banning the idea that, like, we're the product, I think that's also a good idea. Oh, I think that's a good idea, but too. But I just think it's, um, I think it's even harder than, like, the very hard-fought gains of the feminist movement because you are fundamentally rocking an entire business model that basically runs the world right now. And if my instinct is correct, you're also sort of waging a war on human nature you're never going to get the e obliterates eviscerates even when 
uh, YouTube was a more meritocratic algorithm, you still had those videos go to the top. Yeah. You still had that. Right. So even under an ideal scenario, people's attention, I mean, that's all these shows, there were all these shows on, you know, what, the FX channel that would be like top 10 car crashes and like, you know, people just turn towards that shit sort of naturally. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. You can't really put that genie back in the, I mean, we're not going back to an era where, you know, globalization isn't a thing and where we don't have all of this information well, at our that battle fingertips. I will wage until I'm blue in the face <laughs> battle against well not globalism I'd right say, mm -hmm. you know yeah more outsourcing of the job so on and so forth but anyway now we're getting off track yeah you know there's another part of the book that um would be worth exploring too and that you guys should check out um you should get the book and you should you should take a look at where he at the beginning of his journey he unplugs for three months to see what happens to his brain and like the withdrawal. And what does he say? Through. Actually, one of the things that he found, I mean, first it was very hard for him. Um, and he found like he missed the ego stroking of looking at his social media and feeling like he was needed on his email account and whatever. And then he kind of was able to let that go. But then one of the things that he found was a real benefit wasn't he thought he wanted to be able to focus more deeply to write longer to read longer books etc but he actually found some of the most beneficial part was when he wasn't really doing anything mm. when he was just sort of like walking daydreaming and that was when greater connections were occurring the problem was when he got back to the real world he thought he'd had you know he would promised himself like i'm not going back to the way things were mm -hmm. and he referenced uh, in our conversation right now, some of the things that he's done to try to incorporate that and has improved. But, you know, especially with the pandemic and you're you're locked in your apartment or your house and all you have is these screens effectively, it has not been sustainable to have a major shift in terms of how his focus and attention is. Yeah. So that, that makes the point that what you're up against is stronger than any well, one individual of us. When I felt like I actually had a negative addiction to something, there was only one time in my life that I really felt like that, and it was Facebook, that I felt like I genuinely had a negative addiction to it, where I had lost six, seven hours in the Facebook vortex where I was just clicking around and doing things in there. And I remember yeah. distinctly at the end of that six or seven hour Facebook binge sitting there going, I feel terrible. I didn't even want to do that. And so what did I do? I deleted Facebook and never used it again. And um, that is maybe my issue is I project that onto other people. But if you really feel like it's this negative of a force on you, stop it. And you should be able to do that, you know, and maybe other people can't. But that's what happened with me, even with, you know, when I used to read uh, all the mentions on Twitter. And then, you know, when you hit a certain size and there's enough negativity in there as any normal human being will sort of shut down to that. And it, it will take so much emotion out of you and so much it gives you so much angst and negative yeah. feelings that mm -hmm. you're just like, I am better off if I don't do this. And as soon as I was able to convince myself, like, no, I will literally be a happier person, be better off if I don't do this. I stopped reading the responses. That's it. So I guess um, in some ways I'm, I'm, I'm slightly conservative in this broader conversation because I do feel like there is a personal responsibility aspect to it because I want to have the ability to use these technologies because I can use them in moderation. Mm -hmm. And like if somebody can't, that's sort of your problem. Yeah. Like, you know, get your shit together kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, I think it's not just about the edge cases where people are actually affirmatively addicted, though. I think it's about the day-to-day -day where, I mean, I, you know, you've experienced this with me, like the way 
I'll be doing one thing and I'll just get distracted by something and totally forget what that first thing was. I mean, I've definitely noticed well, an erosion in my ability to like hold a thought in my head. And I do think part of that is having three kids and like all that, you know, I have to track with them. And I think part of it is getting older, but I think part of it is some of the trends that he's talking about, which I don't feel like I have an addiction to social media. No, you don't I have an addiction. I feel no. like some of my daily habits have contributed to eroding my ability to like focus in on one task and have those sort of deeper, higher level thoughts. Well, see, I feel like you have the ability to focus in on the task, but sometimes it like, like I've seen it before where you'll pick up the phone and you'll be doing something. And then if somebody says something to you, you don't hear it at all on the first attempt. Yeah. And the person has to be like, Hey, I like, I, I said something. You're like, what, what? Like you have to snap out of it. So right. you are focusing. You're just focusing on the thing that or, maybe you don't want to supersede the other thing. I'll be doing something. I actually need to pay a bill, do, you know, respond to something, whatever. And then somebody says something in the real world. And then I forget about the thing, like mm. the life no, thing on the, yeah, yeah, it cuts yeah. both ways. It's just like gone. You know what? If I don't, you know, all things if I don't considered write it though, down or have it right in front of me. All things considered, it's better than having to literally write a check and mail it every month. <laughs> so there's that. That's the, see, that's the other part. I feel like it, it's very in vogue to bash the negative sides of technology yeah. these days for good reason. But then, you know, nobody ever says the opposite case, which is like back in 1972, if you're sitting there at a bar arguing with somebody, you're two idiots. You don't know what the fuck you're talking about. <laughs> and you guys talk about it and come away with some conclusion that's totally made up and you're convinced of it. Yeah. Today's day and age, you have all the information in the world available at your fingertips 24 7. Yes, and that is a good thing, although it doesn't always lead to people like being able to resolve their arguments. No, it definitely yeah, doesn't. In fact, but yeah, it can lead in general, in. that's a positive thing. It's good to have that option. But anyway, we're babbling now. Guys, <laughs> we love you. Uh, subscribe on Substack to Crystal Kylan, friends. You pay $5 a month, and that gets you the video of the show, and you get it a day early. You also get the wonderful newsletters. And for those of you who do not want to pay the $5 a month, you can uh, sign up on Substack for free, and then you get the audio version of the show as soon as it drops. So thank you for everybody who's, who supports us. We love you very much. We appreciate you, and we'll talk to you soon. See you all next week.